Welcome to Around the Table, a podcast hosted by the Geneva School of Bernie. Please join Rhetoric School Headmaster Dirk Russell as he hosts conversations to foster growth, learning, and community to the glory of Jesus Christ. Welcome to a new season of Around the Table, a podcast sponsored by the Geneva School of Bernie. Last year, I had several conversations about virtue, in particular, the transcendental virtues of truth, goodness, and beauty. This season, I want to continue exploring virtue, especially the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. But before moving on to those virtues, I want to spend some more time considering the virtue beauty. Geneva's theme this year is beauty, and our theme verse for the year is Ecclesiastes 3.11, which reads, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Today, I am joined by Bible Department Head Dr. Eric Covington and Rhetoric School Bible Instructor Brian Odom, and together we are going to try and unpack the meaning of Ecclesiastes 3.11. Men, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Before getting to Ecclesiastes 3.11, I think it's important to begin by trying to understand uh, what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in the verses leading up to uh, chapter 3, verse 11, for us to get this context. So to begin with, we need to talk a little bit about the writer. Uh, Some want to say that it's Solomon, based on verse 1, which says, "...the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem." However, the name Solomon is never used in the book, and the writer refers to himself as Koheleth, often translated the preacher. He doesn't call himself Solomon. Uh, Do you all have any thoughts uh, on the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, it really reminds me sort of, if we're looking at terms of authorship, sort of related to the Gospel of John. And I think that, you know, when we teach in class, my students are always sort of shocked to hear this, you know, who wrote the Gospel of John? And they say, John, you know, and then you go, well, is John, is his name, does he identify himself within the text? And then we find that none of the four Gospel writers actually identify themselves with their name in the text. And so we have here uh, in Ecclesiastes, we have an author clearly and a narrator, um, but they go by something. Right? And in John, he's, he's referred to as the beloved disciple. And so then it's, it's kind of our awesome task that we get to dive in and say, who is this beloved disciple and how do we know that it's, it's John? Right, And so here we don't have it coming out and saying Solomon, but in so many ways it's alluding to clearly Solomon. Uh, and I just wanted to say a, a quick thing that referring to himself as Kohelet, uh, the verb, the Hebrew verb kohal means to assemble. And so what you really have here is, is one who is leading an assembly or one who has assembled people or congregated people together and is now uh, teaching them or guiding them. And that's sort of where we get this idea of a preacher or a teacher. Eric, how about you? Other thoughts? Yeah, indeed. And absolutely saying, you know, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, makes sense. Your mind goes to Solomon, uh, but also absolutely important to recognize it doesn't name Solomon explicitly as it does say in Song of Solomon. Um, This idea, the son of, could refer to, you know, the direct biological heir, but it could also refer to any line of descendants in the line of David. 
Uh, and then also, we do see that just throughout the text, there's some complexity. There's at least two speaking voices. We have this first-person preacher, uh, Kohelet, I speaking. But then there's also this editorial voice that sort of speaks in the third person, especially in these first couple of verses. Um, these are the words of the preacher. And so it's a, it's a complicated, complex text that way. Yeah, I, I see it... Um could be Solomon. A lot of the things that he talks about fit with what we know of Solomon. Solomon pursuing wisdom. Solomon also living uh, a life of excess in some, uh, in some instances. And the author talks about all of the things that he had experimented with, all of the things that he had tried. But he's really presenting himself to us as the preacher. It's, it doesn't matter if he's the king. He, he's learned some things. And he wants to convey those. Yeah. He wants yeah. to bring those out. Yeah, it's that idea that it's it's the message that's the most significant. Um, it's not the authority's not in the person. It's what is this idea? What is the message that's being communicated? And that's the thing that the text really emphasizes. Yeah. And even in chapter twelve, he almost presents himself as a sage, like a, a someone mm-hmm. who has worked among the people and have gained this wisdom. And so. Like you said, it's complex as far as we try to nail down a particular author like we do sometimes, but, uh, but yeah, it is complex in the voices that we hear and, and, and how they sort of put themselves out there. Great. Let's, let's dig in a little bit to the text. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a fascinating <laughs> book, um, and it's unexpected uh, in the sense that he begins the book with this declaration, and I'll read it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, And so instead of beginning with this picture of God and his glory and his magnificence, he laments vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Vanity, And then this question, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? So I'll just throw it out there. Why does he start this way? What's he doing? And let's talk a little bit about this phrase as well, under the sun. He uses this over 20 times in the book. He'll talk about under the sun. And so this is clearly very important to the narrative. So what's he doing with this introduction and what does he mean by under the sun? Yeah, it's it really starts off with this view of this is a book about human existence. This is a book about reality. Um, this is the full picture of what it means to be a human, to live life. And so it starts with, yeah, absolutely, this really big, grand statement, vanity of vanities. Uh, but this idea of under the sun, I, I think it refers to this totality. It's it's everything that we experience. It is going to be this picture of of reality, of human experience in the world. Yeah, and, and sort of coupling this under the sun with you Eric has shown that he's he's very much focused on human life what happens in the here and now what is taking place before our eyes how we live through these things Uh, but immediately he gives his idea on on what that actually is which is vanity (laughs) and it's the fact that 
Yes, it is very much talking about the here and now, the, the daily things of, of human beings and what we do. And, and you can see throughout the entire text, he constantly says, and it all ends up in the same place. The evildoers die, the good die, the young die, the old die, we all die. Everything ends from the dust you were to the dust you create. And so he's, he's very poignant here at the beginning. Everything is emptiness. There's, no matter your strive, no matter your, your work, it's going to end you up in the same place. And so you're right. It is sort of this, oh, Okay, um, <laughs> that's not exactly. I had a student who yeah. did an exegesis, which is drawing out the truth of a passage over of Ecclesiastes, and I could see her face seemingly deteriorating <laughs> over the semester of like, what book did I choose to unpack? Is like I was expecting good, uplifting, and 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 you're just met with it right here at the start. And it is good and uplifting. It is. It is. It is. And so I told her, keep going. <laughs> when, when you understand what he's doing, I love the honesty of it. I think sometimes we as believers even want to kind of shortchange the reality that we live in a fallen world. And becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that your life is going to instantly become easy and perfect. We live in a fallen world, and and this statement, you know, that's under the sun, uh, like you said, Eric, it's encompassing everything. This life that we live under the sun is is marred by the fall. The, the fall is a very real thing. Brian, I think you were going to say something else. Uh, no, I just, uh, I, it's, it's always been strange to me because Ecclesiastes is a really tricky book for me, uh, mainly because I find myself relating to it so much. And, and, and that yep, kind of, <laughs> it kind of, you know, sort of is unsettling that you're connecting to a book that is seen so at the beginning, obviously, so negatively. Um, but it's, it scares me almost because... To answer the question of, you know, is, is all vanity, we want to say no. Like, that's the obvious, immediate thing. Like, surely not everything's empty. But I think we all have those moments where we, you know, it's hard to stand up on an ocean's shoreline and feel big, right? When we look up to the stars, we feel, and we, we're confronted with our, our finitude. This fact that we are here but for a moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that anyone is immune to that thought, and that Always thought seeps in, in right? And it's like, you know, if I if I was here one day and gone the next, what impact really would I have? What what have I changed? What have I done? Because we use this broad spectrum, which he he is very much using here, this big picture of time before us, time with us, and time after us, and in the grand scheme of things we can almost get overwhelmed with it. And I think that's the sentiment here. And, and that gets to that word that he uses, that it's vanity there. The Hebrew is the hevel word. It's, it's one of those words that's really hard to translate. A lot of other places, it's something like wind or breath type of idea. Uh, and so when you sort of have that understanding, it, it really is, it's that idea of it's, it's something that's, ephemeral that that doesn't last because as as he does go through ecclesiastes the idea is not that everything is meaningless and like that's not what he's saying with this vanity right at the beginning uh because the book is going to go on and say you know there there is significance there is meaning 
But I think, Brian, you said it, it's rooted in that idea of our finitude, um, that this really is a book about human experience, and death is at the front of that experience. And like from the beginning, it's very clear in saying our existence is it's short, it's ephemeral, it doesn't have the ability to control our world. Um, and sort of every time I interact with Ecclesiastes, I'm struck by how modern it sounds, like how many of sort of the you know philosophical trends over the last couple of decades are like right there in Ecclesiastes of nihilism, existentialism. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is not right. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's existential, yeah. existentialism. I mean, it's, it's right there. And I think it's important at the beginning to say that what the writer of Hebrews will do, so he'll talk about toil being vain, but then a couple of verses later, he will talk about toil as being good. And so he's talking about a particular kind of life that is vanity. Uh, All of us are going to toil. We can toil in vain, or we can toil in another way. And I think we can just put it out on the table. This life under the sun is life apart from, from God. It's life apart for us as New Testament believers, life apart from Christ. So it's the why do we toil? Um, If we're toiling for some kind of uh, earthly riches or success or fame or something like that, that goes away. It's vanity. It's dust. It's wind. But if we toil in another way, then it's good, and it ought to be pursued. And that's kind of where he's going but he starts with the stark reality uh, that, that all is vanity. And I can't help but thinking of Romans 8, uh, chapter 20 through 23 as well, as, as we read these words where uh, Paul in, in Romans talks about the world being under the curse, under the fall. Um, any thoughts on that, that Romans passage? Yeah, I always love, and, and I'm like you, Romans 8 just shines through here, especially in the, the part, early portions in chapter 1 and 2 where the preacher is speaking mainly on creation. He talks about uh, you know, this, the idea of morning comes, evening comes, morning comes, just this continuous cycle. He talks about the streams pouring into the ocean, yet the oceans never fill. And it's this, this very much this almost as if the creation is toiling. It's almost like the, the toil that the creation has engaged itself in is it's also meaningless. It's, and so it's not filling up. Nothing ever changes. It's over. It's repeating itself. And this idea that creation itself has even lost its ways is what shines forth in Romans 8. And, and, I, and I have to believe because of uh, a, you know, the apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Solomon, being so in Paul's mind in Galatians, I have to think that clearly... This is somewhere there in Paul's mind, this idea that creation, because of what sin has done and because of sin's entrance into the good order uh, that God has created, now he talks about in Romans 8 as, as creation has these pains like it's in labor, right? Groaning. And, and groaning. It's this, it's this very painful image, right? Uh, I think the main difference there, right, is obviously Paul is saying something new is being birthed in the midst of this 
of, of what seems as chaos and what seems as painful groaning, something new is, is certainly on the, is here and, and breaking yeah. forth. And that just there's remarkable continuity between the two. Before in verse 18 of Romans 8, Paul says, you know, speaks about our present sufferings. And like mm. that's Ecclesiastes <laughs> yeah. of yeah. this recognition of the vanity of the elusiveness of this just sort of our life doesn't extend, it doesn't control. We are in our present experience suffering. Um, as as Paul says in that passage just a little earlier. And so I think absolutely there's this continuity, this recognition of in our own, uh, you were mentioning that this idea that creation is sort of in this vanity cycle as well. And I love it because Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that's happening, but think about humanity even within that and how much worse we are because the world's going to keep on spinning after you're dead and gone. Uh, and so it's just that idea of like we are this elusive, ephemeral thing in the midst of a system that seems to be in this vein cycle that's not going to change, that doesn't have any sort of forward-going momentum. Yeah, and, and that's to kind of summarize, to get us up to chapter 3, he begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, talking about the vanity of the created order. It's it's groaning. He doesn't use the same words that Paul uses, but we, we live in a particular kind of world. We, we live in a world that is fallen, and as a result, it, it is this vanity of vanity. So then it, it raises the question, what do we do? <laughs> How do we overcome it? Um, and so he says, Here, here's what I did. <laughs> here's how I tried to overcome it. He said, I tried with pleasure. Pleasure was vanity. Okay? How about wisdom? I'll pursue wisdom. He even says wisdom didn't work, so I'll pursue folly. I'll go to the opposite end. Uh, I'll pursue folly. Didn't work. He says I'll pursue work. Uh, I'll toil. Uh, But it was vanity. So the preacher says I'm trying all of these things to try and overcome the vanity of this existence, and none of it worked. Uh, So my question for the two of you is, should we just lock the doors of the school and go home? Uh, <laughs> yeah. If the preacher says, I've tried it all. The podcast's over. <laughs> Bible classes canceled. In, in some way, yes. Uh, so, well, I mean, my mind goes to different Pauline passage, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's talking about resurrection. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then it is all vanity. And so from that perspective, if it's a work that's not rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation that comes about as a result of Jesus' resurrection, then nothing that we do is going to have any significance or meaning. It is all going to be vanity. Mm. And so if the work that we do isn't rooted in the resurrection, then yeah, we should close the door. But the fact that we have the truth of the resurrection means that our faith isn't vain, that our work isn't vain, and that we do have that solid foundation to, to go on. Absolutely. I think, honestly, if, if Ecclesiastes is going to shout to a generation or to a, a people, we've just gone through a global pandemic. 
right? And, and I know that so many of us sitting here and also in our Geneva community have been through a lot because of COVID. Uh, and many of us have experienced loss and deep loss, close personal loss. And, and, and I think that sometimes in that loss, because the world keeps moving, You've lost someone, someone so dear to you, and the next day you've got to get up and the world, the sun's going to come up and yeah. it's going to keep going. And and it's in those moments that you do start to ask these kind of questions and it's sort of overwhelming in a sense that you kind of start thinking, that person meant everything to me, yet Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and, and how quickly these things move by and, and, and we almost feel like we want to stay in that because we hold on to that and, and it keeps him with us. But I think the author here, and certainly in the New Testament, but the, even here, is going to present this other way forward. That, that it, you can be overwhelmed by it, and we've shown that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he's going to say that th- there's peace in it, there's beauty in it that we can actually find. I think of the word hope. Uh, and sometimes we use the word hope as wishful thinking. But that's not biblical hope. Right? It's do we live in a fallen world where death is a reality? Yes, but we have hope because of the resurrection. Uh, do we live in a world that is fallen? Do we see injustice? And the writer of Ecclesiastes will get, we live in a world where the, the just are punished and the unjust seem to thrive. Do we live in that kind of world? Yeah, we do. That's the reality of it. But we don't lose hope because... Christ has overcome the world. And one day, that, uh, that victory of Christ will be manifest in its fullness. So if we're trying to train kids just so they can go out and get a good job, that's vanity. If, if that's all we're doing, yeah, you're right, we should, we should lock the doors. Um, if we're only trying to entertain the students for a few hours a day, yeah, we should lock the doors because that's vanity. Uh, but but that's certainly not what what the writer of Ecclesiastes is is aiming for. And that brings us to what I see as a shift in the narrative, a shift in the text. Um, because in verse um, twenty four of chapter two, he verse twenty three ends with the words, "This also is vanity." But then in verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. You think, wait a minute. You've just talked about toil being vanity, and now you're saying there's nothing better than that a man ought to eat and drink uh, and find enjoyment in his toil. What's going on? It seems as though, I've always referred to Ecclesiastes as the book of perspectives. And really what he's described are the exact same things. Literally, there's no change, right? It says, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink. How do you eat? Well, you plow the field, you work for it, you get it, right? Right, in their day. That's exactly how they got their food, right? And so find enjoyment in the toil. Wait, this is, this. it seems instinctly that this is a complete and direct opposition from what we've literally mm-hmm. just read. But if you understand it, it's also this differing of a perspective that 
that what can be overwhelming, that what can be insurmountable, that what can seem vanity, empty, hopeless, actually has within it packed all of this goodness as long as your perspective is right. As long as, quote-unquote, the toil and the things you're feeding yourself are, and, and drinking are right, things you're taking in and you're doing are right, there could be beauty found in that. And I think he's immediately presenting this separate pers- perspective on a very similar thing. Yeah, and I think that, that that really touches on the importance of understanding that vanity word, that it's not meaningless. It's our existence right now is is ephemeral, is a breath, is something that's short. A vapor, yeah. Yeah, and that that robs us of our illusion that we have any sort of control over our life. Uh, And that once we recognize that, man, our, our existence is temporary, we are finite, there is this sort of limit beyond which we're not gonna have control or significance, that then gives us the perspective to be able to say, these are gifts from God. Um, and then my mind goes to Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying, do not worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear, because that's a gift from God, that God provides that. Can you add an hour to your life by worrying about those things? No, like death is <laughs> going to come, and no matter how much you worry about it, how much you fight to take control over it, you're not able to. That's not part of what being a human being is and so yeah I love that that there's this shift in perspective that when we recognize our our finitude our ability I can't extend my life an hour I can't exert control then that gives the perspective to be able to recognize these are gifts um, and that God loves us and he cares for us and he provides those things and so that there is an opportunity to enjoy them in the right appropriate order of recognition that it's not the result of our work it's the result of god's gift to us yeah and on that finitude you certainly see something in paul's writing who has obviously read these and have wrestled with these sort of thoughts something that i think that is in paul's writings that is sort of missing here is a sense of urgency because uh, for Paul, it's almost as if he has understood the message here in Ecclesiastes that we are a va- that, that, that we're very finite, that we have a limited time. But for Paul, what that meant was that's urgency. Mm-hmm. That means for what time you were given, what is it that you're doing with it, right? And so, what seems to be a book about things being very finite and by the wind and goes the wind, it comes back, it's very gone is actually rooted within it this strong sense of what you do in the here and now actually does matter. No, that's great. And and Eric, when you were talking, I was thinking of the creation account. Um, God creates Adam and Eve, puts him in the garden to work it, to cultivate it, to, to grow food. Mm-hmm. Um, after the fall, God, God could have said, well, that's it. I'm done with you. Um, but no, he says, the mandate's still there. It's going to be hard. It's going to be harder, but it's still there. So it's this interesting juxtaposition of living in a fallen world, but recognizing that God still provides in the midst of our fallenness. And so it's toilsome, but we receive it as a gift 
Um, and and Brian, what you said, perspective. Uh, our perspective is changed. So, uh, is toil vanity? Yes, if you're doing it for the wrong reason. If if you're toiling in order to gain something that can't be kept, <laughs> then it is vanity. Um, I think of the quote by the missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's we we work we toil for those things that that do last that that are eternal. And that brings us then to chapter three. We're almost we're almost to the verse we were, we started <laughs> off uh, to talk about. Um, verse 3, he introduces this idea of time. And he says uh, that for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And then uh, we see the most famous verses uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, thanks to the birds. Um, if you have to look them up, they were a band from the 60s. Um, and said Ecclesiastes 3 to music. Um, what is he doing here in introducing us to this idea of time? And, and I think it's an important question because it's going to relate to what he says about beauty. And that's what we're, that's what we're after. Um, so why does he introduce this idea of time? I yeah. think, oh, go ahead, no, please. Eric. No. Well, I was just going to say, I think it absolutely has still to do with that idea that there are things beyond the human ability to know, to experience. It's this recognition that there is this order, there is this time, this progression that we can see. There's a time for something to be born, there's a time for something to die is that in the human's ability to have any say in that? No. (laughs) And so it sort of goes on these couple of verses, every one of them, there's this time, this structure, this order of our human life that's beyond us, that transcends us, that we are, we don't have the capacity to either control or even know. And so I think that it's sort of, it's continuing that idea and it's saying, look around you, recognize these patterns, these times, um, it it exceeds you. That's beyond the grasp of a human to know or to change or to have any significance. Yeah, I I read the the star here of chapter three and the different times is sort of like uh, a vague memoir that anyone could put their life into. And so you kind of get this sense that this is an elderly person hearing this because it's very, death is on the forefront of this entire book a lot. And so you kind of get this look back on your life. And this, when you mentioned Eric earlier, you mentioned how uh, human life and just humanity is at the center of this book. When you think about it, think of your own life, right? Have there been times where you've cried? Have there been times where you've you laughed have there been times where you were joyous and times where you were sad it's it's almost just the guarantees of life in a way and so uh, it's it's very much rooting though that human life in time and that that's these are the things that you experience that all experience in time and, and I think where he's going is going to show why these things are not just so general but actually 
matter. Yeah, and, and I think he's saying, too, that a part of our understanding our life under the sun is to align ourselves with the way that the world is, right? There's a time to plant. There's a time to reap. So uh, if, if I'm a... I grew up in the Midwest, so I use corn. If I'm a corn farmer and I go out and I plant right now, thinking, well, I need to get this. I'm in trouble. Yeah. Because there's a time to plant, (laughs) and it's right after the last freeze, so you have the length of time that you need to then go and harvest. Or if I say uh, in October, end of October, well, I'm going to wait until December to harvest, you're in trouble. The, The crop is gone. It goes away. So it's this idea to me also of aligning ourselves with the way that the world is. Um, And then comes what I take as a promise in chapter 3, verse 11, where he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. So this is the verse that we wanted to talk about. Um, What does this mean, that God makes everything beautiful in its time? Yeah, I see this in it absolutely in connection with those first eight verses of chapter three because there it, it's not specified; it's just kind of general. There is this pattern, there is this order that you can see in creation that's not dependent on you. And then here, starting sort of verses nine, and then particularly here in verse eleven, the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us this is God's order. This is the way that God created our world to function. Like, that's why you plant when you do. That's why you sow, because that's how the world works. That's how God has created it. And so to say that God has made everything beautiful in its time, I think tells us this really significant truth about what beauty is, Mm -hmm. that it's reflective of God's order, God's structure, what God has built into our world into the cosmos, um, and so that beauty is reflective of what God has done. And like that's what beauty is. Yeah, and I, I think of the the three transcendental virtues: truth, goodness, beauty, and they work together. It, something is beautiful because it's true and it's good, and something is good because it's true and it's beautiful, and, and so there because. The world is a certain way, and God made it that way. So I, I think that insight of it helps us understand beauty is is perfect. Yeah, and and just as you were reminded of the creation narrative earlier, with Eric speaking of this and this this God making everything beautiful in its time, this sort of ordered to it, it that shouts forth that creation narrative. And I always love teaching the creation, teaching the creation narrative when we see how beautiful it is that God set up everything. Mm -hmm. And we break the days down into this poetic day four fills day one and five fills day two. This, The stars and the moon and the sun fill the expansive. The birds and the fish fill the seas. And even in, in Genesis 1, you're seeing that there is this order. There is God has made these things. And then obviously what you said this, what does God say? It's good. 
And if something is good, it's beautiful, it's true. And so God is putting his stamp on that. And so even in this, when we see the cycle and how the, the narrative has started here in Ecclesiastes is sort of uh, pessimistic almost, if you, you know, want to go lightly. But uh, it's really shining forth that thing that you just point out, pointed out, Eric, is that even in this thing that you might get lost and say that things don't make sense and nothing matters, it's actually been beautifully orchestrated. Yeah, and I love that in the critical Greek translation, the Septuagint, like our standard critical text, it translates beautiful with the Greek word kalos, good, Mm -hmm. which is that word which was repeated throughout the creation narrative. God saw that it was good. Um, And so I I just thought that was really interesting for those translators to see beauty here, Yafe, which can absolutely mean this aesthetic, you know, Joseph and David are Yafe. They're good looking, they're handsome, there's an aesthetic quality to it. Um, But here the Greek translators at least see this connection. It's it's good, it's kalos, this sort of callback to that creation. This is good, this is right, it's according to how God's created. Yeah, it's it's fitting or it's appropriate or... Mm -hmm. In many ways, this is a promise of redemption. God makes all things beautiful in its time. Beauty, because we live in a fallen world, takes time. Uh, But there is the promise of redemption. We get glimpses of it, we get hints of it. And I think that's what he gets to in in the next part of the verse. He says, also... so. God makes all things beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What does this mean? He's put eternity. It's just a great phrase. God has put eternity in the heart of man. Yeah, to me personally, this is where it all comes together for me. And and I think it's important to note right off the bat that I, I don't think that the author has such a developed idea of eternity like we do from the New Testament, Jesus speaking uh, on this subject quite a bit. I don't think when he says eternity, he's thinking of eternity quite like we do. Because when we think eternity, we just think forward eternity. But I think here we have the perspective that life has taken place far before you. And then we obviously, with this times and things that are going, life is occurring while you're here. But also, there's going to be life after, that there's something coming. And for me, this is, again, where it all comes together. He says, God's made everything beautiful in its time. And in addition to that, God has put eternity, this past, present, and future, into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end, but in the midst, when they get to live, when we are here in the here and now, it gives great eternal weight to what we do. And that, to me, is what drives me from this passage, from a passage of loathing and like sorrow and despair to this exciting passage to say, you can have the perspective that you're a vapor. You can have the perspective that your, your life is fleeting and, and finite, but you can also have this perspective. And what it says is what you do in the here and now matters. And even if what you do in the here and now seems to not matter so much, The beauty is knowing that not only does it matter, it has eternal weight, right? And so one of my 
favorite uh, uh, New Testament authors is N.T. Wright, and he speaks about these things that we do that might be considered toiling, right? Our toil, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're whatever you might, a teacher, right, for us. Uh, it all comes back to that, what is it that you're working for? Right? And, and when we see injustice and we speak out against it, when we do genuine good, when we preserve beauty, when we instill love in others and extend that love, these are not things that are fleeting. These are not things that are vapors and mists that are going on. These are the actual things that will last into God's good creation and into God's eternity. Yeah, I love it. And it's that idea that we, we recognize our finitude, but we also sort of recognize that which is transcendent, that we stand in sort of this position where we recognize there's eternity there that transcends, it extends beyond us. And I love that Ecclesiastes is able to hold these two sentences, these two clauses in the end of (laughs) verse 11 together. We have eternity in our hearts. We recognize this pull to the transcendent, yet also recognizing the reality we don't know the end or the beginning. And that that's kind of this, what it means to be human. We find ourselves living in the midst of this existence where we don't know the beginning. We don't know the end. Uh, one of our 11th grade classes is our worldview class. Uh, this came up in one of our discussions with, with me one time, and I tried to express it to the students. I said, how did you get here like as a human being? And they all kind of looked at me like I was silly for a little bit, but they're like, we were born. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, that's a good start. Do you remember being born? And then they're like, no. Well, well, how did you know you were born? My parents told me I have the birth certificate. I'm here. But, but do you know you were born? They're like, no. So, I mean, it's kind of a silly example, but we're trying to show... There's some sort of faith, some sort of trust. You can't see the beginning of your life. You can't see the end of your life. Nobody can. That's not in the human's ability. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that. We can't see the beginning. We can't see the end. There's some faith, some trust that everybody has to have about what our beginning is and what our end is. And I love it that Ecclesiastes holds those together and say, yes, we have, we have to be humble in recognizing what we can't know, but yet we also have the truth of eternity in our hearts, and so that we can recognize goodness, truth, beauty, not because we can control it and know it, but because in our faith and trust, ultimately rooted in the resurrection, we know that that's the story that we take by faith and trust. Yeah, I love that you uh, incorporate faith within this. Because to understand your place in time, to, for me personally, takes faith. Because I think what Ecclesiastes does is reminds us that there is actually no time but the present. Right? And, and my students are sort of shocked. I say this quite often. A huge Cowboys fan, they'll tell me, you know, is this the year? Well, of course, I'm a Cowboys fan. It's always the year, right? Uh, but I'll tell Hasn't them. Hasn't been the year in a long time. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> but for us, it's every year, baby. We're right back in it. And so, but, you know, to bring that here, what I tell them is the future doesn't exist and neither does the past. What matters is right now. 
right? And they're like, wait, what? It just confuses them. That way I can get out without having to say that the Cowboys probably won't win the Super Bowl, right? Uh, but anyways, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes basically does that. Is It shows you this big grand picture, but it also reminds you that you're here in the here and now, right? And I wrote this down, and you, you spoke on faith, and it takes faith to understand yourself within this great machine of time, but also in this one space of time. And I wrote down uh, that uh, the heart of uh, it, sorry, um, the beauty of it all is that we have a heart of faith that believes what we did with our one person, with our one time, and with our time here, that our life, uh, even though it may seem like the here and now, that this faith, that it belongs to something bigger. Right, and so when we share love and we love others, when we uh, speak out for for justice, when we are there for the oppressed, all the things that Jesus tells us there in Luke four, when we are doing these things, when we are living out these things, we believe we know that in its time they're beautiful, but we have faith that they will eternally be beautiful, and that this is an an accurate reflection of God's good eternal presence and that faith there is what is so uh, crucial because you can get bogged down and tell yourself that yeah this maybe it doesn't matter but the the faith is the key there that you keep doing these goods because you have the faith that even though it's finite even though it's for a time that this good this love that you're instilling is actually echoing into eternity and then how beautiful it is that Ecclesiastes 3 goes on, and in verse 14, the first phrase is, I know that whatever God does endures forever. And that contrast yeah. between the vanity, this fleetingness of our own existence versus the truth of God, whatever God does endures forever. Every human being recognizes that there's something wrong with the world. <laughs> Everyone, they, they may disagree about what it is, but every human being recognizes that something is wrong with the world and wants it to be different. Every human being. And the beautiful thing about Ecclesiastes is the writer of Ecclesiastes says, yes, every, the, the world is not what it should be. We want it to be different. What's the answer? The answer is God, who makes all things beautiful in its time. We have faith. We trust in him. We recognize that he is at work. Uh, He's not an absentee father. He is at work in the world. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is then able to return in verse 12 to encourage the very things that he earlier said were vanity. So he says in verses 12 and 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. If our perspective is that something's wrong with the world and God entered into this world that went wrong in the person of his son to make it right, then we are able to live a life of joy, of peace, of toil. The toil doesn't go away, but it's a toil that 
that matters. It's not vanity. It's not chasing after wind. Uh, as you've said a number of times, uh, Brian, it matters what we do. But it only matters because God has made all things beautiful and will make all things beautiful in its time. You guys have any final thoughts? One thing that really stuck out to me as I was sort of rereading Ecclesiastes for this conversation was the connection between humility and beauty, mm. just in ways that I hadn't really put together in quite that way, especially that last clause of, of verse 11. We don't know the end. We don't know the beginning. We have to live in faith in humility, trusting that what God does endures forever, knowing that God knows the end and the beginning, but we don't. And so that puts us in this position of we have to be humble, epistemologically humble. We have limits on what we can know. But that produces awe and wonder at the eternity that we have in our hearts at those moments of transcendence where we see and I, you, you said earlier, stand on the seashore, recognize, you know, your smallness in the midst of it. But that provokes awe, that provokes wonder. And that's what beauty does as well, is it speaks to that thing that transcends us, that extends beyond our finite horizons. And we respond with 